You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak, your host for today's show. It is good to be with you today. Thanks for being with us. The Doctor's Lounge is broadcast live Thursday mornings on America's Web Radio and is available by podcast at the uh, Apple Store uh, anytime uh, that is uh, most convenient for you. So thanks again for your time and attention. We ask you again, as we always do for your financial support, please go to www.dnumeral4pcfoundation.org and please give generously. If you like what you hear, we need your contributions to continue to bring you the very best in healthcare policy chat radio. So thank you very much once again. So... As healthcare news, policy, whatever, has kind of taken a momentary backseat on the world stage uh, to dictators with their fingers on the nuke button and lowlifes in Virginia with their foot on the gas pedal and in the shadow of the upcoming eclipse, which will cut a big diagonal path across the United States, um, there hasn't been a lot of room to talk about healthcare and healthcare policy in the news of late. However, we'll start off the show with an announcement. Not a big announcement, but an announcement of sorts um, about our practice, my practice, the practice I work in, Ear, Nose, and Throat of Georgia North uh, in the Atlanta area. Uh, we are officially, after 13 years with one particular electronic medical record system, uh, we're in the hunt for perhaps a new one. Not guaranteed. Uh, we have a lot of sort of milestones coming up in our computer infrastructure, our IT infrastructure. And without making this little personal story too long, our our servers, right, the beige boxes that you buy to run all this stuff uh, are getting old. Uh, in 13 years, we've only purchased two sets of systems. And probably within the next 90 days, the computers that we have, which are almost uh, eight or nine years old, which, you know, you know, in computer terms, that's like, you know, 150 in dog years, so to speak. Um, they are old, long in the tooth, well past their useful lifespan. And it's beginning to show. Uh, this morning, we were down for the first 30 minutes of our day, which is recoverable, but is actually a real disaster if you think about it. We, they managed to get the servers back up, but it takes a lot of manpower and people have to drop what they're doing. And you never know when you start seeing patients when the computer's going to come back up. And it's really a very crippling thing. So as we look at whether we should buy all new computers or go to the cloud, right, instead of buying the computer space, you lease the hardware and you never know where physically it is. Uh, but that seems to be the way of the future. So as, as we're making all these changes, uh, we're thinking, well, Maybe we should at least look after 13 years and see what's new out there. So in the process, we're kicking tires. We're talking to other vendors. You know, the odds are probably, you know, greater than 50-50. We'll stay where we are. But it's good after 13 years to kind of look around and see exactly what's out there because you never know. So to that end, uh, my administrator and I were invited to go to uh, an executive-level dinner, as it was called, two nights ago, uh, down in Swanky Buckhead in Atlanta, and listened to the executives, the C-suite folks, of this particular well-known top-tier EMR vendor. 
I won't say their name, uh, to listen to their strategic plan, not so much to see a demo of their EMR product. It was sort of a higher level thing than that, but to listen to their strategic plan and to hopefully, in their eyes, be impressed, be dazzled by some new, brilliant strategy. And they began the talk saying, we want to completely change the image of our company. We want to completely change where we're going. We want to go after the business of the independent physician, which was very interesting since so many physicians are now employed and independent physicians are a progressively shrinking breed. I think it's down to 30%. But they profess to be most interested in doctors like me and my partners. And my administrator and I looked at each other and said, hmm, maybe – there's something to be had here. Maybe we're going to be impressed. Maybe we're going to be dazzled. But unfortunately, as we listened to an hour's worth of presentation over a very nice dinner, we were disappointed. It was pretty much the same old thing. They bragged about how many acquisitions they had made in order to bring more capabilities to their product. And some of the folks that were acquired talked about their product and how it was going to contribute to what was going on. But in the end, all of the goals appeared to be the same. There was really no particular change. So at the end of this presentation, they all looked at us, mainly my administrator and myself, and said, what do you think? And Elizabeth and I looked at each other and couldn't decide whether to just be honest and tell them that none of what they said was really new, or should we just tell them what they want to hear and thank you for a nice dinner and go home. And we decided to be honest. We decided to say, look, you know, you started off looking really good and sounding really good, but in the end you had the same old garbage that everybody else has, and there was really nothing here that was new. And, of course, they were not expecting to hear this. They kind of gave us that deer-in-the-headlights look. It's kind of funny, actually. And uh, I have to say, though, in their defense, that the unscripted conversation that followed was actually very good. And we did get them to admit a few things that were good. I looked one of them in the eye, and I said, do you believe that meaningful use was a good thing. Do you believe that quality reporting enhances quality of care? Is that a good thing? Uh, do you think that all these regulations that we have are good things, or do you think they're bad things? And off the record, they were very candid and said, no, we, we don't think these are good things. Uh, and we said, well, <laughs> you need to make that clear in your presentation. You're not going to impress everybody, anybody. You need to say what you said in the unscripted conversation, which is that Healthcare regulations are there. They're the law. Conforming with the law and compliance is a necessary evil, but we'll get you through it with as minimal pain as possible because that's not what they said in the presentation. So it was, it was, it was part of what I am beginning to see. Whether I go to Washington and I talk to folks in government inside the Beltway or now EMR vendors, some other places, that you can get folks to admit off the record that meaningful use was not a good thing. I mean, it was a great thing financially for the vendors, but that it was not a good thing in terms of where it took the industry. It was not a good thing for healthcare itself, not a good thing for patients, not a good thing for the physicians charged with the task of actually taking care of patients and being most responsible for how well they do. And they did say meaningful use wasn't good. Quality measures weren't good. And it is encouraging in a desperate search for good news that we're beginning to hear this from more and more corners of the universe. And it could be that even officially we're starting to hear some good things. So a couple of this with a, with, a, with a story that just came out a couple of days ago about 
uh, CMS, now looking at some rather significant regulatory changes. As you may or may not know, uh, one of the things that is a part of the current regulatory structure from the government coming from Medicare is these mandatory bundled payment models. Um, to this point, uh, there's, there's several programs that they have, You know, one of which is for uh, joint replacement. Another one is for cardiac rehab. Uh, there are others that have to do with sort of episodic care like uh, acute uh, heart attack, myocardial infarction, coronary artery bypass graft, surgical hip, femur replacement, femur fracture, I'm sorry, femur replacement, femur fracture, you know, sort of these common things that have very common treatment pathways that CMS had these programs in place to do sort of a single bundled payment sort of thing. And some of these were going to go live in October of this year. Um, but CMS has, as of the 16th, two days ago, made some major changes here. The first is that they have made the uh, joint replacement model bundled payment protocol voluntary instead of mandatory in 33 out of 67 areas. So that's very interesting. Most of these, I think, are rural areas and low-volume hospitals who can still participate in the joint replacement bundled payment protocol if they want to, but now it's voluntary. And I think that's very interesting and very relevant. Even more impressive is the fact that some of these have actually been completely canceled or they've been proposed to be canceled. Um, the advancing care coordination through episode payment models and cardiac rehab has been proposed to, to shut that down completely. And I think that's very interesting, especially the voluntary part, because as you may or may not remember, uh, what I've advocated in recent months is that the entire MIPS macro thing, the whole meaningful use program. You know what MIPS and MACRA are if you listen to us, the big program that's tied to meaningful use in medical electronic medical records uh, that has been mandatory all these years uh, could go voluntary. And so it's interesting that if they can go voluntary on some programs that have long been regarded as mandatory, maybe they can go voluntary on some other ones. Uh, Tom Price, uh, HHS secretary, has has come out against mandatory bundled payment programs. And interestingly, uh, one of the major physician deputies at CMS, one Dr. Pat Conway, uh, very nice guy that I had the privilege of meeting in February of last year, uh, uh, was actually in support of mandatory bundle payment programs, and he is actually leaving CMS as of October 1st, I think, to join Blue Cross Blue Shield of North Carolina. So there are some major personnel shakeups going on which would support the theory that we're seeing major changes within CMS, and maybe as the months go by, we're going to get more good news uh, out of CMS. And that would be a very good piece of news indeed. Uh, not all the news is good out of government, however. It can't be that rosy. Uh, another story came out uh, a, a couple of weeks ago on August 4th. Uh, talking about the uh, Government Accounting Office, Government Accountability Office, uh, who apparently has the, the authority, and I don't under, profess to understand how this works, uh, to appoint members to a Health Information Technology Advisory Committee whose job is to uh, provide recommendations to Don Rucker, Dr. Don Rucker, who is the, uh, the, the head of the Office of the National Coordinator of Health Information Technology, 
And I thought, well, this is interesting. Uh, you know, I'd love to be on such a committee myself. So I was looking at the list of the f- folks that were on here thinking, well, of course, they're going to have some docs on this committee, right? That that does make sense. This is health care after all. I mean, health information technology starts with health. You would think there there would be physicians on the committee. So uh, I looked at the, the list of folks on this committee, and they've got uh, 15 people. Five of them are appointed to one-year terms, five appointed to two-year terms, five appointed to three-year terms. So 15 people. Out of 15 people, how many do you think are physicians? Ten? No. Seven? Nope. You're getting warmer. Five? No. Three? There is one. There's one physician on this committee. Uh, it is one Dr. Terrence O'Malley, a geriatrician at Mass General Hospital. Uh, so geriatrician is probably not a bad specialty to have, but only one doctor? Uh, this is ridiculous in, with 15 people. Inappropriate. Uh, so, you know, I don't know. This is how this will, will affect what's going on and whether the, you know, at least I can tell you that having spoken with Dr. Rucker a couple of months ago, uh, I will tell you that he gets it. Uh, so hopefully that, you know, whatever recommendations come down, it sounds like it will be filtered through a, a competent mind, uh, in, in Dr. Rucker. So we are at the end of the first segment. You are listening to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Lawyer Liz. Join me each week as we discuss drones, the Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. It's Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz, Wednesdays at 2. With all the back and forth in today's politics, it seems as though the Constitution gets lost in the mix. If you want to brush up on your Constitution, then join Michael Conley every Wednesday from 4 to 5 p.m. for the show Our Constitution on AmericasWebRadio.com. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Mike Karuchak, your host. Good to be with you again uh, here on America's Web Radio. We're just talking about a whole sort of smorgasbord of stuff uh, in a relatively quiet time uh, in healthcare policy, you know, everyone's still licking their wounds from the failed attempt to reform Obamacare, and then the stage was rapidly taken over by all sorts of foreign policy issues related to foreign countries, uh, domestic issues related to crazy people driving cars into crowds during uh, demonstrations and uh, folks who are normally supposed to be paying attention to health care and other more important stuff have had uh, have been distracted uh, in addition we're in August which is the 
summer recess for Congress and for just about everybody else in Washington, D.C., so nobody's there. And so we've just got a whole sort of list of things to talk about here. We, we talked about some, some favorable changes coming out of CMS here in the last 72 hours, and we've got some more stuff to talk about. So start off again with a story. I like starting off with stories. Doctors like to do that. We tell stories about individual patients because although we are into data as much as anyone else and we're into data-driven care as much as we can be and we're into statistics, the bottom line is we take care of patients one at a time. And you've heard me say that before. You're going to hear me say it again. But uh, when you talk about all of these 50,000-foot sort of concepts, big data, population health, all of these things, that's all well and good and that's fine. And, and, and they probably have a use somewhere. But the folks who push this stuff forget that it's only useful insofar as we can take that information and translate that into improved care for an individual patient to improve my ability to make decisions and offer patients options based on the tools that they suggest do some good. Don't know. So on to the story, right? We talked in the first uh, segment about the, the story about dinner. Uh, my administrator went to a dinner, talked about uh, an EMR company who thought they had something brand new but maybe didn't, and we had an interesting conversation. So here's another story. This has to do with what's going on in our, our practice, what's going on in our world. And it's, uh, it's across the board. Uh, we're slowing down a little bit. Uh, you know, Historically, healthcare in terms of its volume, the number of patients coming through the door, the amount of spending, utilization – has been a very steady thing. It grows at roughly 5% per year, whether the economy is booming or the economy is crashing. That number may fluctuate a little bit, but because it has at least to this point been driven so heavily by insurance uh, rather than the private or the free market economy that the economy may boom, healthcare plugs along somewhere in the middle. Health, you know, the rest of the economy may bust. Healthcare just kind of sits there doing the same thing. But now that's beginning to change. And we're seeing decreased volume in our practice. We're seeing decreased volume in our surgery center. We put out feelers and talk to people we know, both in other surgery centers and in other practices and folks that manage multiple surgery centers. And everyone is clear that the decrease in utilization seems to be system-wide. The most common thing that's blamed, and again, this is intuitive, this is not a data-driven thing, this is a theory based on intuition, that this is because of high deductibles. Not only the Obamacare exchange policies, which of course have rising premiums and rising deductibles, but because of all of the extra regulatory burdens imposed, not just by Obamacare, but by 50 years of increasing government regulation, uh, is slowing things down. Premiums are going up, deductibles are going up, and folks are getting sticker shock every time they need something significant in healthcare. And at least in surgery centers in Atlanta, there are a sizable number of cancellations going on. And the most common reason for these cancellations is that people get sticker shock when they look at their deductible and, and the, the package is put in front of them in terms of how much insurance will pay, how much you're responsible for as the patient and what the total cost is. And folks are walking away from procedures, in many cases, procedures that they need. Now, you might say, well, hey, that should be a good thing, right? I mean, we're talking about, you know, costs out of control, overutilization, no breaks on 
overutilization, growth, etc. So, gee, this means that high premiums and high deductibles must be a good thing, or at least the high deductibles, right? Well, partially. I think it does prove that when you give patients first dollar cost, and at least in the case of doctor-owned ambulatory surgery centers, you can see some price transparency that at least you know exactly what all the line item costs are going to be for your procedure before you actually choose to do it, as opposed to hospitals that won't do that for you. They just say, come and get the surgery and get your procedure, get your care, and we'll tell you what it costs afterward. There's price transparency up front, which is good. So when you combine upfront pre-transaction price transparency with first dollar cost, you're going to get a decrease in utilization. The problem is that high deductibles and price transparency only give you half of what you need. The incentive to not get care is a little too strong, and I can tell you in my own practice, there are folks going without care who really, really need it. It's not just a matter of going, ah, you know, it's a it's a mild symptom thing. It's not worth it. Folks that really need stuff and can get it. And what are the missing pieces? Well, the big missing piece is a health savings account because the folks that are faced with a $5,000 deductible for their elective procedure don't have $5,000 to spend. So even if they say to themselves or say to you, their doc, yeah, I, I would pay 5000 for this if I had it, but I don't. So the health savings account would sort of modulate that a little bit or, or mitigate that problem a little bit so they would have a few thousand dollars in their pocket at least after a year or two of putting money away. And be able to say, yeah, I've got the money, so I can now decide it's either worth it to me or it's not. And if it is worth it to me, at least I have the capability of acting on my choice. The other part of the problem has to do with how deductibles are structured, right? That $5,000 deductible applies regardless of the urgency of your need. And so whether it's something elective that's just a symptom thing or something that's urgent that is a matter of your well-being, you still have a $5,000 deductible. So I would rather see a, a catastrophic-only policy or something analogous to that where the coverage for bad stuff is solid and the, and the care is truly affordable, and only when you get into things that are more elective would it be something that there would be more financial burden on the patient so that you're actually reducing the footprint of insurance to – True insurance, as we've called it here, where claims are rare, but they're big, and the vast majority of folks pay into the pot, kind of like life insurance and car insurance, right? We've talked about that before. So I think the the, the concept of a deductible as it's currently used is, is a little bit too much of a disincentive to spend. But it does show that when you put some of these things on the table, that it does work to sort of depress things. Okay, let's move on to something totally different. Just, you know, again, a smorgasbord of things. What I do to get ready for the show is I actually, as I see interesting articles come across my doorstep, I'll mark those and email the links to myself and put them in a file. And when it comes time to do show prep, I'll go through all that and kind of find the interesting stuff. So, you know, in the absence of some big overriding topic, since we've kind of beat healthcare reform to death and we're sort of looking for some other interesting things, health IT, other places, these are the articles that I kind of saved and then come up. So the, here's something very interesting about big pharma, and you may have run across these already, but uh, you, you have heard us discuss, and we talked about this a lot last year when we talked about the $600 EpiPen and how is it that a 
a, a prescription drug with about 50 cents worth of drug in it plus an inexpensive delivery mechanism ends up costing $600 for a two-pack when it only costs you about 20 bucks to make the darn thing. And in those shows, I introduced you to the concept called a pharmacy benefit manager, which is a third party to the third party. It's actually a fourth party, right? So when you get your insurance card with Signet and the Blue Cross Blue Shield, whatever, the prescription benefits actually come from a separate entity such as a CVS Caremark or something like that. So so you not only have now you not only have a third party, which is the insurer itself, you have a fourth party, which is this pharmacy benefit manager. And we talked about some of the perverse, awful stuff that goes on where they are no longer drug manufacturers no longer compete on price; they compete on rebates or they compete on clawbacks, and so that actually drives prices up, not down. So this is all now finally coming into some legal action, and a lawsuit has been filed against CVS, Caremark, and. Uh, one other one it doesn't show up in the article here, but uh, this whole idea of your your copay for your prescription may be more than the cash price. So if you are getting an inexpensive drug, let's say amoxicillin or Bactrim or something that's been a long you know while been been out for a long time, there's multiple generic brands available, and the thing is dirt cheap if you pay cash might cost significantly more if you whip your insurance card out, show that to the pharmacist, and you end up paying a copay rather than a cash price. So the plaintiff in this lawsuit, one Megan Schultz, paid $165 for a prescription, which uh, had she paid cash and had no insurance card, would have only cost $92. The allegations are the pharmacy knew that the copay exceeded the cash price. They, they, they charged her the higher price anyway. And here we are. So now there's a rash of articles coming out, which I suggest you read. I'm just sort of giving you the, the quick 50,000-foot view that these pharmacy benefit managers will will force pharmacies to charge the copay even if it exceeds the cash price. And, and so now hopefully all of this stuff will sort of come to light. Uh, and I've always been very frustrated with the whole concept of a separate pharmacy benefit manager where drug costs and care costs for care are in different silos. We run across this because there are uh, a couple of common situations in my specialty where if we could get the right drug for a patient, we could control their disease process well enough to make the, the need for surgery significantly less. The problem is you can't offer that to the insurance company as an incentive because – the pharmacy costs and the care costs, the surgical costs, live in completely different silos. So I can't go to an insurance company and say, if you will improve expensive drug X, I won't have to do surgery Y. Well, they don't care because the pharmacy benefit manager doesn't pay for the surgery. All they care about is cutting the drug costs. This whole concept that something that's well-managed medically might not have to be operated on, there's no incentive to make that work. One hand doesn't know what the other one's doing. Couple that with another study or another article I found, which has to do with uh, CEOs' uh, massive salaries. I gotta come way back here find this article. Here it is. All right, so we're only down to like thirty seconds. So this this actually ties down to what CEOs make, and and you've heard about this before. And and it's boring to just go ahead and demonize you know healthcare CEOs all over again. Uh, we've seen that before. Here's the thing that's the kicker that was new about this particular article, which is nowhere. 
in a healthcare CEO's contract, are there any incentives for them to limit spending? So you would think they would get bonused if they could control spending. Actually, it's the opposite. And David Goldhill has discussed this before. Insurance companies don't lower costs. They increase costs because their incentives are to grow and have more claims, which allows them to charge more premiums and allow them to have more profits. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchek, your host this week. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. This is Dr. George. Join me Wednesday mornings for Medicine on Call and participate in a lively conversation. Learn what's happening behind the headlines in medicine. Understand Obamacare and learn how to protect yourself and navigate the system. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge. Dr. Mike Karuchak here, your host this week. Thanks very much once again for giving some of your time to spend with us here on the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. We broadcast live Thursday mornings on America's Web Radio, and we are available as a podcast on iTunes, which is very, very convenient. We're proud to have about 15,000 podcast downloads every month, and we are very grateful to you, the listener, for your continued support. So... Uh, you guys know, if you've listened to me much, that I like to start off the, the, the show with some sound bites, and I've got some prepared. And I usually like to roll right into those off of the intro music and sort of give things a little bit of a different flair. But I've, I've got so much to play back that I wanted to start by at least letting you know you've come to the right place because some of this stuff runs several minutes. But uh, you know where we are with this healthcare thing. We know the whole thing is in a shambles. Uh, and I'm just going to throw some sound bites here back to back and just see if you feel at the end of uh, listening to all of these in sequence uh, the same way I felt. So uh, so let's see. Hopefully we got these in the right order. So here we go. This is number one. This is um, uh, Senator McConnell's uh, speech when uh, it turned out that, Ob- that the uh, repeal of Obamacare was going to fail. Uh, he had this to say late at night. Uh, on the floor of the Senate. We told our constituents we would vote that way. And when the moment came, when the moment came, most of us did. So, yes, this is a disappointment. A disappointment indeed. I regret that our efforts 
were simply not enough this time. Now imagine many of our colleagues on the other side are celebrating. So now I think it's appropriate to ask what are their ideas. It'll be interesting to see. For myself, I can say, and I bet I'm pretty safe in saying for most of the people on this side of the aisle, that bailing out insurance companies, bailing out insurance companies, with no thought of any kind of reform, it's not something I want to be part of. So now, Mr. President, it's time to move on. I would say to my dear friend, the majority leader, we are not celebrating. We are relieved. And as I said over and over again, Obamacare was hardly perfect. It did a lot of good things, but it needs improvement. Maybe this can be a moment where we start doing that. Both sides will have to give. The blame hardly falls on one side or the other. But if we can take this moment, a solemn moment, and start working this body the way it had always worked until the last decade or so, with both sides to blame for the deterioration, we will. Our problem is that for seven years we've been telling folks what we're against and what we're opposed to, and then we've had seven months to govern. And the best we can come up with is a skinny plan on 24 hours notice. Uh, we got to get better at telling people what we believe, why we believe it, and then persuading them that it's right for the country. We've had plenty of time to do it. We set unrealistic expectations, and then we never meet them, which leads to anger and frustration. It's a complicated issue, but mm -hmm. it's always been. We've had seven years to figure it out, and the best we came up with was something called skinny. Yeah, that's just about right, I think, Mr. Gowdy. Yes. Uh, this, this just, you listen to these three sound bites together and it just, it, it makes my blood boil. It makes smoke come out of my ears. It, it, you know, it's, you know, McConnell could not put something together that should have been easy and straightforward in this political environment. Uh, Schumer is disingenuous as they come with, uh, you know, the, these remarks over, uh, you know, taking this moment and, and making Congress work the way it used to. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, Congress the way it used to be was, you know, 50 years of the same thing that Obamacare was. This was no, uh, you know, sort of, uh, of, of, of genuine uh, rec you know, conciliatory uh, stance. It just drives me crazy that both parties, the arrogance and dishonesty and incompetence of both parties just continues to stun me. I mean, you know, on the Republican side, I mean, was it was it too much to ask? And I'm not even worried about the whole seven year thing. Right. We keep hearing this seven year equation saying that we had seven years to come up with a, a replacement for Obamacare. Well, I guess that's true from from a particular point of view, but you didn't know what your political climate was ever going to be. I mean, until Trump was elected, you had no idea if you were ever going to get any chance to do anything. And everyone was expecting Hillary to be elected. So I'm not sure that it makes sense to say we had seven years, but we certainly had from November November, December, and six months this year, eight months, really, nine, because July is finished, uh, to come up with something better, and that easily could have been done. Uh, you know, it, it was it was an obvious thing, and I, I guess it's easy to play Monday morning quarterback in 2020 hindsight and all that kind of thing, but, uh, you know, the method by which this was approached was horrible. 
I mean, why not just have an open dialogue for 90 days, let everybody talk about what they're going to talk about, meanwhile go behind the scenes and talk to every single representative, every single senator, now that they're elected and you know who you're dealing with, and try to get a lay of the land politically to see who's going to stand for what, as opposed to this reactionary sort of shoot from the hip, fail, shoot from the hip again approach where you know you put plan A up and find a couple of senators that aren't going to vote for it, and you put plan B up and find people that aren't going to vote for it, and plan C up and find people, often the same people, who aren't going to vote for it. I mean, that's a completely unplanned, you know, incompetent shoot from the hip approach. You know, why wasn't there something more planned? Why wasn't there something a little more deliberate? I may get in trouble here with some of my colleagues, both within my organization and, 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 and certainly outside uh, of our organization, uh, to, to say some of these things, but you know, politicians, because of their political promises, are at least on the Republican side, must be married to the idea of repealing Obamacare. Whether you talk about repeal alone, skinny repeal, whatever stupid terminology you want to put on it, that they are they are stuck like a ball and chain around their leg. Uh, they're attached to the idea that they have to repeal Obamacare because that's what they promised the voters. The problem is. And we have said this before on this show, that Obamacare is not something that you can just repeal with a one-page bill. You can't pass a bill that says the Affordable Care Act is null and void because Obamacare has been in place for seven years. You know, It's not a light bulb that you can turn on and off. It's more like a metastatic cancer that has sent a metastasis into every organ in your body. You can't just undo that. You can't just do a total body scan and decide to do a giant operation to cut out every piece of metastatic tumor that you find. You just can't cut out every mass that you find. Uh, if the tumor is bad enough, the patient would never survive the operation, and, and doctors know you, you'd never cure the cancer that way anyway. This is more like dismantling, uh, and it kind of reminds me more like, you remember the old detective shows in the 1970s where, you know, at the climax of the show, there was a bomb ticking that the bad guy set, and the good guy had 10 seconds to cut three wires. And if you cut the three wires in the right order, you defuse the bomb. If you cut the wires in the wrong order, you, the whole thing blows up. That's really what Obamacare is like. It has to be unwound. It has to be dismantled and then has to be replaced. But, you know, this whole idea of, of uh, you know, skinny repeal or repeal, uh, you know, in any form where you make it all go away with a single piece of legislation uh, just isn't going to fly. And it's 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 and part of the problem is when they would suggest that kind of a repeal, you know, it was easy for the Democrats to come up with talking points uh, like taking Medicaid money away from people, you know, and taking away pre-existing condition coverage, uh, or you know, the whole age difference with respect to premiums. Uh, you know, there's 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 no way that you can actually do that. So. Uh, you know, it, this just again. Every time Republicans take aim at this problem, they shoot themselves in the foot. And and I will be honest with you here. I'm I'm getting a little angry. I am getting a little bit impatient about sitting around waiting for these people to come up with a, a, an option. Uh, you know, we talk about this whole seven years thing. Well, you know who has been working on solutions to Obamacare for seven years? We have. Uh, the group of doctors, you know, represented with Docs for Patient Care Foundation for sure, but not the, that's not the only organization. Uh, and those of you listening know who some of the other folks are. Uh, but we've been working on this for a long time. Um, how about listening to us? 
How about listening to practicing doctors? If you talk to a practicing doctor, what might you hear? Well, the first thing you got to face is a, a few inconvenient truths. I hate using that term. A few things that you got to face here. Number one is there are no legislative options that have ever been talked about that are actually going to solve the problem of Obamacare. Because it's really not – Obamacare is really not the problem. Obamacare is just the cherry on top of a dog squeeze Sunday. You know, it's only the cherry on top. It's just the last step of a process that's been going on for half a century as long as the government's been involved in health care. So to you know, Obama was just foolish enough to get his name stuck on it, uh, and so he's going to be the one that gets you know, credit or blame as we gain historical perspective. But uh, n- none of these things, none of the stuff that was on the table fixes this. You can't fix this by talking about coverage, right? We've talked about this before. You have to come up with solutions that make health care cost less, measured on a tra- cash transaction basis. If all you do is figure out how to come up with how to pay $3.6 trillion every year, then the next year it's 3.8 and the next time it's 4.0, and no solution you have is going to be able to pay for it anymore once the number grows to a certain amount. Number two. The leadership of both parties, both parties, is no longer a credible source of ideas and can no longer be regarded as an effective source of communication, period. Obamacare was rammed down our throats in 2008, 2009 by one party. Republicans were going to do the same thing. And government's not going to solve this problem. Government's not going to volunteer to reduce its footprint, either its regulatory footprint or its financial footprint. Right? Politicians are too beholden to their campaign donors that come from big places like insurance companies and great big corporations and, and folks that have vested interests that don't reflect uh, what's good for everyone. If you ask a doc, you know, repeal and replace Obamacare or, or save Obamacare and fix it, right? Each party has different rhetoric on how to discuss this stuff. But here's the deal. I don't really care what you call it. I don't care what you call it. All we need to do is get from where we are from where we need to be. And if you want to describe that as repeal and replace or you want to describe that as a, you know, a save it and fix it, I mean think of it this way. Let's say you drive a red car and you decide you want a blue car. right? You can get to a blue car one of two ways. You can sell your red car and buy a blue car. right? That's repeal and replace. Or you can have your blue car painted red. Just repaint your old one. Either way, you end up with the the color you want. You can do it by starting with the car you own and redoing it, or you can sell the car you have and buy something else. It really doesn't matter how you get there. Now, we're already at the end of the first segment. You are listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Stay with us. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's www.docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. Whether cruising the Strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 
The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Welcome back to the Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. Karuchak, your host here. Thanks for sticking with us. Uh, We are... uh, I am, actually. Uh, I'm indulging myself here a little bit at your expense, and I hope you are good enough to listen. I think it's going to be worth it, although I'll admit up front that much of the front end of this show is turning into kind of a rant, if you will. Uh, And I think we're all kind of frustrated. I I suspect it will reflect your frustration as well. Uh, We're sitting here well past six months uh, into an administration and a Congress that we really expected because uh, they had no bloody excuse not to. We really expected that these folks would deliver on health care reform, and we found not only that they have failed to deliver on health care reform so far, but the the process by which they approached the problem was so poorly thought out, so incompetent, and so disappointing um, that it you know you, you listen to those three sound bites that I played to open the first segment. And you just have to ask yourself, I mean, you know, where do these people, what, what the heck were they thinking uh, when they decided to do this in secret, like the Democrats did, try to ram it down our throats by one party, like the Democrats did, and, and, and expect this all to work, to come up with these, you know, skinny repeal and repeal without replace and just so these sort of knee-jerk responses to, you know, failed steps – uh, and it's kind of like with every small failure, you know, their response was, you know, less and less effective until the point where, the, you know, at the moment the whole thing has blown up in their faces, and we are nowhere with healthcare reform. And although you know they're supposed to be still working on it, and there are people that you know aren't giving up on it, I guess thankfully, you know, I just don't know uh, unless you really change some fundamentals where we're going to go next. Uh, and I am going to propose how to change some fundamentals. So stick around for some kind of crazy ideas and uh, and let's see what you think. So we had sort of started, uh, sort of ended the last segment. I'm going to kind of double back and, and sort of try to do all this in one, uh, you know, sort of breath, if you will, uh, to say, you know, what is it that's important to practicing physicians? Uh, as we look at this, and again, we have a better view than anybody who works in the government who used to be a doc. And I'm sorry for saying that. We have some dear friends who are former physicians who are working in Washington, and I don't mean to uh, to attack too much, but, you know, we've been at this a while, and, you know, the current approach isn't working. I think we have to question everything that's out there if we're going to come up with some way to succeed at this. But none of the legislative options that are out there actually solve the problem. Right. None of the things they're talking about. I mean, as long as you're talking about coverage as opposed to actually making things cost less, you know, the, we're not going to succeed. I mean, it's a three point six trillion dollar tab for health care. Let's say you come up with a way to come to generate three point six trillion. Well, next year, the price goes up and the year after that, the price goes up until nobody's plan is going to work. We have to figure out how to make health care cost less. 
right? Doctor's visits don't have to cost hundreds of dollars, and I'm saying that at the risk of hurting my own pocket. But doctor's visits don't have to cost hundreds of dollars. Imaging studies don't have to cost thousands of dollars, and operations and other more elaborate treatments don't have to cost tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars. Those prices can come down if we create the appropriate environment to allow them to come down, and there are ways of doing that. Secondly, the current leadership, and I mean both parties, are no longer credible. They're not effective communicators. They are not an effective or credible source of ideas. We need to have new ideas presented by new faces. Right? Politicians are way too tied down to the people who finance their campaigns that often have objectives to run counter to what we're trying to do. It just isn't working. And we can argue it in theory all you want, but we've been at this for 50 years, and it hasn't worked to this point. There's no reason to think that somehow magically that's going to turn around now. We talked about how doctors – I don't care what you call it. right? You can call it repeal and replace. You can call it save Obamacare and fix it. You know, maybe there's a clever solution out there that allows the Democrats to claim victory by having saved it and the Republicans to claim victory by having repealed and replaced it. But like we talked about in the last segment, if you own a red car and you want a blue car, you can repeal and replace your red car, sell it and buy a blue car, or you can take your red car and have it painted blue. Right, That would be saving it. It doesn't matter. Either way, you end up with the color of the car that you want, and you know it doesn't really matter how you get there. So what's the last thing doctors understand that politicians don't? And that is – and we've talked about this before. This is nothing new that you can't – just because you put an insurance card in somebody's hand doesn't mean they're covered. And, you know, you've heard stories on this program. We, we, we know patients. I mean, to doctors, all this stuff aren't statistics. They're real names, real faces, real sad stories. Uh, I've had somebody in my practice who uh, came in on an Obamacare exchange plan, which we accept, but the hospital that I would take that patient to for surgery doesn't accept the Obamacare exchange plan that the patient had, so I could not take care of this patient. Then we had to figure out somewhere else to send him, and I'm not sure we ever solved that problem. Bottom line, government is not going to create a program that fixes this. I'm going to say it again. Government's not going to create a program that fixes that. I don't care if you let Democrats have full control. We know what they do. Or Republicans have full control. Even if we gave the Republicans by some magic thing, we gave them 61 votes in the Senate. And we didn't have to deal with reconciliation and all that stuff. I still don't think that they could come up with a solution to do this because there's too much divergence of opinion, too many people beholden to too many other sinister forces. Uh, I don't think it works that way. I think we need to change the strategy to a different approach. I think we need to just ask for legislation that allows, doesn't mandate, but allows the development of free market solutions like direct primary care, like Oklahoma Surgery Center, uh, and just make sure these, these, this legislation, whatever comes next, if anything, um, does not prohibit those things like, say, Canada forces that out. There's a way that we can work on the side and let direct primary care flourish and let cash-based surgery flourish. Uh, and, and, and so, let the government have whatever they want. As long as they let us do our thing, I almost don't care what they do otherwise because all of it's going to be crap. So I think we need to pressure 
put pressure on folks just to allow an outside a system outside the main government design, the main framework, be allowed to operate and be allowed to grow, not mandated, but to grow on its own without any interference, and let folks choose. Just let folks choose. Heck. You know, we could even change the we could change the expression. If you like your Obamacare, you can keep your Obamacare. Just let the rest of us work on something better. Now, that's the new idea, right? We're going to change the ask. Instead of asking for an elaborate repeal and replace that that mandates anything. I'm all I'm asking for is something that allows what David Goldhill calls green shoots, right? Stuff to flourish on the side, right? I'm not asking for a law that, that forces direct primary care. I'm asking for a law that allows direct primary care because I'm not afraid to put my money where my mouth is. None of us are, right? All we're asking is don't outlaw it, right? Just give it room to grow, right? Allow, you know, pass legislation that allows direct primary care physicians to exist without fear of retribution from state insurance commissioners. Um, allow price transparency. Allow folks to put cash prices up without getting in trouble with insurers because of most favored nation contracts or other things that, that really make it very, very difficult to be price transparent. Right? You can't just demand price transparency. You've got to create an environment that allows price transparency. Right? You can't just pass a law that forces prices down, you have to allow the creation of an environment that will force prices down on its own. And I don't, you know, let's just allow Medicare money and Medicaid money to be used to pay direct primary care premiums. Those are the kinds of things that I think will will bring about change, but I'm not asking for it to be mandated. I'm just asking for it to be allowed to kind of live off to the side because it is my belief that if that's allowed to happen, those things will grow on their own. And they'll grow because the people choose them, because patients will choose that model of care over a regulatory heavy Obamacare things. Doctors will choose to provide care in those environments, and patients will seek care in those environments, and it will grow and overtake the official government system on its own without any sort of regulatory problem. So I think that's the strategy change. And as long as they can write that into some sort of repeal, I almost don't care. Write something that lets Republicans claim victory and Democrats claim victory and let the politicians spin their wheels because we don't care about them. We care about our patients. So what about the new faces? Right? I said we needed to have new ideas presented by new faces. And this is where I'm going to let a little anger and frustration come through here because I think the new faces need to be us. I think the new faces need to come from groups like ours, not just us, of course, um, groups of practicing physicians who to do what we do and live like we live. How is that? That is like the day I had today. Right? I saw 31 patients in the office. We were cranking it out from 8 o'clock in the morning until 6.30 at night, seeing the patients and getting the work done. And then you come home and you do your reading and you do your prep and you, you get ready for your radio show or you do your reading, or you, 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 you write your opinion piece, and, and we've been doing that for seven years. You want to know who's been working for seven years? We've been working for seven years. Congress hasn't, but we, a small but rapidly growing group of full-time practicing doctors, have become experts on health care policy. It's time to give us the lead in this issue. 
And I know that may sound a little self-centered and arrogant and naive, but, you know, I've tried to be the better man for, you know, the better part of all these years, and I'm just getting a little bit tired of it. It's time for practicing physicians to take the lead. What advantages do we offer? Well, first off, we're not politicians. That's probably the biggest one. We're not bound to campaign promises. We're not bound to political contributors. We don't have to raise money. We don't care about getting elected. Elected. All we care about is our patients and our ability to provide care for our patients. So we have nothing to lose politically. I can sit behind this microphone and say pretty much what I want to because I don't have an election to do and I don't have to worry about that stuff. Uh, and, and that allows us much more flexibility. Right? We've been in the trenches. We study this stuff in the evening. We go take care of patients the next morning and the next morning and the next morning after that. That gives us much better insight than anybody who makes a career inside the Beltway, even if they do have MD after their name. Right? We're, we're, we're not tied to past failures. We can be fresh faces with fresh ideas and no fear. We're not afraid to call something BS if it's BS. We're not afraid to support something if we like it. And I think if we went under those conditions, we could go to the Democrats the way Schumer actually suggested when I played back is to come up with something where politicians from both parties are involved. Because sadly, I think we've proven the Republicans aren't going to do it on their own without getting some Democratic votes somehow. You're listening to The Doctor's Lounge on America's Web Radio. The Docs for Patient Care Foundation is your way to join the fight and become a member of an organization created by doctors for patients dedicated to fighting for your health care freedom and preserving the doctor-patient relationship. Get a pen and paper. Write down docsforpatientcarefoundation.org. That's D-O-C-S, the number four, patientcarefoundation.org. Go to our site and please make a generous tax-deductible donation and join the fight today. Thank you. <laughs> 